If you'll open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. <laughs> and as you open up to Exodus chapter 12, I remind you where we left off. We are, as we open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, we're finding ourselves waiting for the proverbial other shoe to drop. In the face of Pharaoh's repeated defiance before the Lord's command to let his people be set free, a reckoning is coming. The tenth and final plague, the shadow of death, is about to come creeping into the land of Egypt. A horrible cry is about to echo throughout the land as the firstborn males of both humans and animals alike will be struck down in the dead of night. This will be the breaking point of Pharaoh's resolve, the decisive turn in the story, as centuries of slavery for the Israelites will finally come to an end. All of this is coming, but here, here we are now, caught in the space between life and death, between slavery and freedom. We know what will come of Pharaoh and the Israelites, but what about us? Where are we in this story? Through the first nine plagues, we learned the hard way that the Lord is God and that there is no other Together we have been powerfully reminded that the Lord is the creator of the world and the sustainer of all life. Together we have witnessed revelation and rebellion, judgment and defiance, power and impotence. We have witnessed many contrasts between the true God who delivers and the false gods that we make up, the false gods that we cling to. And now, you and I stand on the verge of experiencing where living in denial of the truth, where believing the lie inevitably leads us. Fear and uncertainty are in the air. How can anyone hope to escape the dead end that a life without God inevitably leads to? Beloved, judgment is coming, but grace is not far behind. Thankfully, as we will read this morning in Exodus chapter 12, there is another way a way for this dead end we find ourselves to go away. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people who are there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with, we, with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat with the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water but roast it over the fire, head, legs and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is still left till morning you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate. It is a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And skipping to verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and now the final most terrible plague, the worst of the judgments, the death of every firstborn. The firstborn of every family, even the firstborn of the cattle, were to be struck down by the destroyer, the angel of death. But here, this morning, we read of an escape clause, a means of grace that God gives Moses and the people. What follows is a series of specific instructions for this plague of death to pass over the Israelites. Salvation is centered around a meal, the Passover. In order to be set apart from what is coming, the people were told to take a male lamb, an unblemished lamb, a lamb without defect. That perfect lamb was to be slaughtered in such a way that its blood could be collected. Back then, there was a trench outside of a, the door of a home that held a collection basin. The original intent of having this pot in this trench was so that water would not run into your house. But now the people are told that when they slaughter their lamb, it was to be done at the door of their house so that the blood ran into the trench and then the basin. Next, you were instructed to take a bunch of hyssop, a local plant, and you were to dip it into the collection basin at the front door of your house. Using the hyssop as a brush, you were to smear the blood above and around the door frames of your house. This blood was an identifying marker that kept death from knocking at your door. The rest of the slaughtered lamb was not to be discarded. It was to be roasted and eaten by the entire family living in that house. Along with the roasted lamb, you were to eat bitter herbs, representing the bitterness of your bondage and your slavery. And you were also to eat unleavened bread, representing your departure from your old life, the old leaven of Egypt. I hope you notice as I read that when you ate this meal, you were not to sit around the family kitchen table to eat. You were standing at the counter, dressed and ready to go. Your donkey and your cart loaded for travel. A little tongue-in-cheek, but this is the Bible's equivalent of fast food. <laughs> as this meal represented the haste with which the Israelites left Egypt, there was no time to waste. Now, in hearing all of this, and as I've kind of tried to help enter in, us in, enter into it, I want us to be really clear about something, because many people look back on this story, 
and, and we perceive this as some kind of superstitious ritual. The instructions for the Passover, beloved, were not given as some sort of magic formula. This meal is not something that Moses and Aaron thought of. No, this meal, these instructions come directly from the very heart and mind of God Almighty himself. The Lord lays out precise directions when and how the meal is to be prepared, the hour, the time it is to be shared, the attire that's to be worn, and even the speed at which it is to be eaten. All of it, every step, was not some sort of superstitious ritual or magic formula. All of it, every step, was meant to serve as an act of faith. Take the smearing of the blood, for instance. I don't know if when we hear about this, and again, a casual reading, the smearing of the blood, the sign of the blood, wasn't for the sake of the destroyer, as if the angel of death might get confused and enter the wrong house. The marker of the blood was for the sake of the family living in that home. It served as an act of faith that said, we believe what God says is true and that God will spare those who trust him. And if we were to read on, as we will later, it's pretty clear from the story that not all the Israelites believed this. There were some who did not and their firstborn died. But for others... The offering of blood represented a tangible way to express their faith, to cling to the promises of God, while at the same time being reminded of the cost of their deliverance. What the people are told to do is more than an exercise of submission. It will become for them, as we heard, a roadmap for their faith, their journey with this God from this day forward. That is why, in most of the history of the Old Testament, the Israelites observed the Passover in one form or another. By the time you get to the New Testament, the Passover is still being celebrated, but with some new practices. In the days of Jesus, Jews no longer smeared blood on the doors anymore. That practice had gone away. A lamb was still sacrificed, just not in the same way as described here. Those Jews who couldn't make it to Jerusalem slaughtered a lamb on their own. But with the establishment of Israel as a nation... Passover became more of a national festival. The priests would gather at the temple, and the high priest would slay one lamb on behalf of the whole nation. Through the annual offering of the lamb at the temple, another practice developed, what was called the crowned sacrifice. And forgive me if this gets a little graphic, but after draining the blood from the lamb, the lamb was gutted. The intestines were taken out and draped vertically around the head while the lamb was roasted vertically on a pomegranate stick. This process, known as a crowned sacrifice, was another method of ensuring that every part of the lamb was eaten or burned, per the instructions we heard given to Moses. The eating of bitter herbs and of unleavened bread were still part of the Passover observance. Added to this, though, was the drinking of four cups, four special cups of wine. The first was called the cup of blessing. The second was called the cup of wrath. The third was called the cup of redemption. And the fourth was the cup of the kingdom. Each cup represented a different aspect of the journey of freedom. Another aspect of the price of redemption for the people of the Old Testament, the Passover represented the defining event by which the Israelites came to answer the question, who is God? Later, they would speak of God as the one who gave them the Torah. 
Later, they would speak of God as the one, they would point to God as the one who gave them the promised land. Later, they would declare God to be the one who showed them a new vision of a future after exile. But first and foremost, before they could get there, for Jews then and still today, God is the God who delivers. The God who rescues his people from bondage and brings them into freedom. It's so great that we're looking at this because I, I find, and not, I'm, not, I'm talking beyond grace here, but we tend as Christians to relegate Passover to the Jewish faith. We, we pay, don't pay very much attention to it, to its observance, its meaning, and, and in doing that, we ignore how foundational it is to our own story. In the New Testament, Paul will write that Jesus Christ is our Passover. Now, does Paul mean this literally or figuratively? Let's reflect on this for a moment. Getting a little bit into the details, in God's instructions to Moses, the lamb chosen for the Passover was selected on the 10th day of the month. We heard that. And was introduced to the community on that day. Take note of the timing of this, because the 10th day of the month was the time in which the lamb was brought out to the people. This is significant because part of our observance of Palm Sunday the start of our celebration of Holy Week and our countdown to Easter is remembering Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Interestingly, we are told that the timing of his entry into the city was the 10th day of the month, precisely the same time that the priest introduced the Passover lamb to the people. You remember or heard the reason why the lamb was introduced to the community was to ensure that all the people could verify that the lamb was up to the standards necessary for the sacrifice. As you recall, the lamb had to be without defect. All the people had a chance to look the lamb over, to make sure, to become convinced that this lamb was pure, without defect, without flaw, and thus fulfilled the law of God. Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus upon that entry into Jerusalem. Like a lamb, Jesus was introduced to the people. He spent time that week going in and out among them in the temple courts and meeting the blind and the lame. He was challenged and tested frequently by the elders and chief priests and scribes, by Pilate, by Herod, by Ananias, by Cephas, and in every case they found nothing wrong with him. We are told that in order to crucify him, they had to make up charges against him. Why? Because Jesus was a lamb without blemish. At this point, the words of John the Baptist come to mind, and perhaps they make more sense if we didn't understand them before. When John the Baptist says to his own disciples the first time that they see Jesus, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John declares what our brother Paul later confirms, Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the Lamb of God to which all the earlier Passover lambs anticipated. John and Paul are beckoning us to see how the observance of the Passover is fulfilled in and through Christ. Do you get where this is all leading? Beloved, on this Valentine's Day weekend, we learn that the Passover is a glimpse into the heart of God. It is a glimpse into a love and a commitment that pours out in all of its fullness through the cross of Christ. And I don't know about you, but 
for me in the world in which I see with all of our many addictions, with the economic, political, and cultural forces that are ceaselessly trying to control us, I need to hear, you need to hear, we need to hear of a God whose love for us is so great that it will stop at nothing to set us free. The Passover reminded Israel and the cross declares most definitively to us that we worship a God who says, be mine in no uncertain terms. God withholds nothing, giving us his heart, the life of his own son, in order to ensure us that we have been rescued, we have been saved. Like Israel, we may taste and eat the bitter herbs of oppression and bondage, but we feast on the lamb who was slain in order to remember that we have been set free, free from the pharaohs of this world, free from the pharaohs of our own hearts, free from sin. More than this, the blood of the lamb that covers the door frames of our hearts assures us that the wages of sin, the cost of death, will not and cannot have the last word in our lives. As Paul will later declare most profoundly, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we do well to remember to step back in the midst of our celebration, and we should celebrate. We do well to step back that the mark of the Lamb also reminds us that such deliverance is costly. We believe, you and I, we believe and we speak. We love to speak of a God of love. We love to talk about how God is love. But the cross and the Passover keep all of our talk of this God of love from becoming sentimental. Valentine's Day indeed. Beloved, love like grace we find is unconditional. It is free, but we see here that it is not cheap. It costs blood. Flowing on the ground into the trench, smeared with hyssop over the door, visible for all the people to see. There is something about sin that is so tenacious that blood has been shed to free us from its clutches. God loves us despite and yes, even through our tendency towards violence and death. We can talk about it, but how this is possible, how redemption, reconciliation, even resurrection can emerge from such horror and pain, the blood of lambs, the life of his only begotten son, we cannot explain. There are no words. Every attempt we try Something is missing. And we're not asked to understand it fully. We're not asked to explain it completely. Many of us in our evangelism feel the need to come up again with some magic formula for how this all works, some superstitious ritual, and that is not of God. It is of our desire to control what the Passover and the cross confront us with is that all we are called to do, all we are called to understand is that we are saved. We are delivered. We are rescued. And being saved, delivered, and rescued is a costly undertaking. All we are called to do is accept and believe such amazing grace. All we are called to do is embrace and submit before such everlasting love. Because beloved, beloved, love like this changes us. It changes everything. 
The transformative power of this love is perhaps most evident in the very first words of instruction that the Lord gives Moses. I don't know if you even caught it. This month, God says to Moses, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. What the Lord is saying here is this. The gift of the Passover for the Israelites resets the calendar. The gift of the Passover resets the calendar for those who follow its instructions. In other words, if redemption is about a new beginning, then being redeemed changes how you tell time. What you orient your life around. When you trust the Lord to save you, and I hope many of us can say an amen to this, when you trust the Lord to save you, it doesn't matter whether it's February, June, or September. When you let Jesus be your valentine, it is the first moment of a brand new life for you. One? Amen. You want a box of chocolates? <laughs> when we come to this table, we don't just remember his death. We participate in it. His life, his death, his heart become ours. They become ours so that we might identify with the firstborn son of God and not with the firstborn son of Pharaoh. We are no longer defined in this relationship through this love by our enslavement to our work, our enslavement to what we produce, our enslavement to what other people think or say about us. Our identity, our security is in Christ, in his love for us. On the night that he was betrayed, we are told that our Lord Jesus celebrated the Passover. But beloved, our Jesus did more than celebrate it. He transformed it. On that night, Jesus Christ became our exodus. Through the journey of the cross, Jesus became our deliverer, our savior, our exodus from under the judgment of sin and the condemnation of death and into a new eternal life of forgiveness and freedom with God. Jesus Christ himself actually became the Passover. So did Paul mean it literally or figuratively? And the answer is yes. Yes. And Jesus, our Passover, Jesus, our Exodus, hear this this morning, beloved. Hear this, these words. Jesus invites you and me to get up out of our pews and to make that short but public journey to this table. We're invited to come this morning with our bitter herbs, our broken hearts, our tears of shame, our feelings of unworthiness. We are invited to come and taste the unleavened bread, a life lived in repentance, in a new direction, without all the additives that weigh us down. We are invited to come and dip this bread into the cup to be marked once again with the blood. The blood of the Lamb of God, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. We are invited to realize and declare that Jesus is the only one who can fulfill our lives, the only one who can save us and set us free. Beloved, we are invited into more than a memorial meal. We do this week in and week out, not simply as a memorial. Memorials are for dead people. This table, this meal, and why we participate in it every Sunday 
is because we celebrate not some token of a love that is dead, of a love that has been sacrificed and is no more. We celebrate that Jesus is our Passover. And because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and conquers the destroyer, the power of death is finished as well. We proclaim and we worship a risen Christ. A Jesus who has bodily risen from the dead. And so, beloved, understand, if you've never understood it before, that this same Jesus is present with us this morning. And you and I have the unique opportunity to meet him in this table, at this table, as in no other way. And it's so fitting. It's so fitting that Jesus instituted this table, this meal, in the context of the Passover Because if you think about it, the Passover meal was given to the Israelites as a feast of anticipation. Think about it for a second. When God gives Moses these instructions, when this meal is instituted for the first time, the Israelites are still slaves. At the end of the meal, the Israelites are still in Egypt. Still in slavery. The point is this, the Passover is a feast that remembers bondage and celebrates release from that bondage before that release is realized. Embedded in the very hastiness of this ritual is an impulse towards the future, an anticipation of the consummation of the exodus in the promised land. To make it very, very simple, participating in the Passover is the first step in a much larger journey a pilgrimage of faith. And in the same way, the Lord's Supper was instituted like the Passover before our bondage from sin and death was realized. This meal, while focused on our present redemption in Christ, also has a future aspect. Paul tells us that we who partake of the death of the Lamb of God are proclaiming his death and resurrection until he comes. When we eat of this bread and when we drink of this cup, we are declaring that we have been saved, but we are also declaring that we need grace to endure the wilderness of this world. Together we partake of the wonders of this love, of the powers of the age to come, but you and I still have to go forth back into the wilderness. We are still, all of us, looking for our final redemption, the consummation of all things, our entry into the promised land, when all things will be made right and new, when we will gather around what the book of Revelation calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. Beloved, the Passover reminded Israel and the cross assures us that being set free is a journey of faith, a pilgrimage towards hope, It's not a question of if we will make it to the promised land. It is a question that even our children ask us repeatedly when we're on a journey. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We come to this table each and every Sunday just to answer that question. Are we there yet? And the answer again is yes. So I ask you this morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you and I ready to leave Egypt? Do we have our cloak tucked into our belt? Our sandals on, our staff in hand? Are we ready to get up and go like the Israelites towards the future rather than live in the past? What are the things that are holding you and I in bondage this morning? Religion? Addiction? 
egotism, pride? Where are we still bowing before the gods of Egypt? Money? Sex? Alcohol? Power? What are those things that are holding you and me in bondage? For whatever they are, Christ is here this morning. He is the deliverer and he seeks to break that bondage. He wants, he will set you and me free. He shed his blood not so that we could be happy. Not, as I said last week, to make good people better. He shed his blood, he gave his life so that dead people might come back to life. So that you and I might be freed to become all that God wants us to be. And so hear the word and embrace it in a few moments at the table. You and I are invited this morning to embrace this sacrifice of love. The lamb that was slain, the lamb that was sacrificed so that we all might live. Come, be marked by this everlasting love. The blood of the lamb, the blood that marks the entrance and exit to our lives so that we might find safe passage in a world hell-bent on destruction. Realize, my brothers and sisters in Christ, realize with me that our heart, your heart and mine, belongs to someone. Your heart belongs to someone. We are not in the Lonely Hearts Club anymore. Our hearts belong to someone. And this God in Christ will never leave you or forsake you. Don't delay. Come in haste and partake of this feast of love. Come, come to the table. Come, for we are pilgrims of faith. And together, our journey has only just begun. Amen?